Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Today we're talking about a big theological mystery. What did Jesus say was the unforgivable sin? And how in the world can we know whether or not we've committed it or not? Welcome into episode number three of the Bible Mystery Podcast. On this show, we talk about the great mysteries of the Bible. Some of them are going to be theological, like today's show. Some of them are going to be cryptozoological, like last week's episode on unicorns. We'll cover aliens. We'll cover all sorts of things. Some of our topics are going to be pretty out there. Some of them are going to be grounded and solid biblical questions such as what is gossip and what exactly does John 3.16 mean? Today's question is a big serious biblical theological question and before we get into that I do want to invite you to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. That's hugely helpful for us. And you can do that by going to our website, BibleMysteryPod.com. Once again, BibleMysteryPod.com. That's it for the introduction. Let's dive into the main topic. So what is the unforgivable sin? What What is the unpardonable sin? As a pastor who's been in ministry for 20-something years, I get that question a lot. Sometimes I even get people really worried that they've committed the unforgivable sin and terrified that God won't forgive them. I don't know that everybody really has a great understanding of what it is. And we're going to look through church history for a few minutes and get in the Wayback Machine. And I think you'll find... There's been some confusion about this topic for quite a while. For instance, the Didache, which you say, well, what is the Didache? You've never heard of that. It was a first century book, so right after the New Testament was written. The Didache was a first century book that claimed to be the teachings of the apostles of Jesus. Now, I don't know that I buy that claim, but it was a book that almost made it into the canon of Scripture. A lot of people in the early church really respected it, and it definitely has a lot of good things and teachings in there. Uh, and, And this is one of them, although I don't necessarily agree with the Didache's interpretation, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, But this is what the Didache says the unforgivable sin is. And I quote, Now concerning the apostles and prophets, deal with them as follows in accordance with the rule of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be welcomed as if he were the Lord. But he is not to stay for more than one day unless there is need, in which case he may stay one more day. But if he stays three days... He's a false prophet. Now, that's how you tell whether somebody's a false prophet or not. If he stays at your house for three days, boom, false prophet. The Didache continues. When the apostle leaves, he is to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. That's pretty good wisdom there. One more thing it says. Also, Do not test or evaluate any prophet who speaks in the Spirit, for every sin will be forgiven, but this sin will not be forgiven. So, is the Didache right? Is the unpardonable sin questioning the utterance of a prophecy? Well, another early church father, this is Andreas from the 500s. He says this, It is the sin of heresy or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit which leads to death. Andreas says heresy is the blas- is the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one, Athanasius, who I admire a great deal. He was in the 300s. He says this, If even after all of this, our opponents are still unwilling to learn and still unable to understand, they should at least stop speaking evil. They should not divide the Trinity, lest they be divided from life. They should not classify the Holy Spirit with creatures, lest, like the Pharisees of old who ascribed the works of the Spirit to Beelzebul, they too, on account of equal audacity, incur along with them the punishment which is unpardonable both now and in the future. So Athanasius is saying that having an incorrect doctrine or teaching of the Holy Spirit 
specifically considering the Holy Spirit a created being instead of God, is the unpardonable sin. St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain in the 1700s, he says that there is an unpardonable sin in grave robbing. He says just merely opening up a grave is not unpardonable, but opening up a grave and taking the clothes off of a corpse and stealing its gold and silver, that is unpardonable and Thank you, Nicodemus. That's a very disturbing thought you have there. John Chrysostom, he says this. He identifies the unpardonable sin as something completely different. He says swearing, and we're not talking about cussing, as they say in the South. We're talking about swearing an oath here. He says swearing is a dreadful and harmful thing. It is a destructive drug, a bane, a danger, a hidden wound, a sore unseen, an obscure ulcer spreading its poison in the soul. It is an arrow of Satan, a flaming javelin, a two-edged sword, a sharp-honed scimitar, an unpardonable sin, an indefensible transgression, a deep gulf, a precipitous crag, a strong trap, a taut stretched net, a fetter that cannot be broken, a noose from which no one escapes. Now you see why John Chrysostom was called the golden-tongued preacher. He was uh, pretty good at the turn of a phrase. But he says swearing an oath, which is indeed forbidden biblically, he says swearing an oath is the unpardonable sin. Now, Hilari of Poitiers, and we're almost done with all of these opinions, but there's just a lot of them to cover. Hilari of Poitiers, who was an early church father as well, he comments on the passage this is from. This is uh, his commentary on Matthew. He says, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven to men, but blasphemy of the Spirit will not be forgiven. With a grave qualification, Jesus condemns the view of the Pharisees and the perversion of those who also think like them. He promises pardon or forgiveness for all sins, but refuses pardon for blasphemy of the Spirit. While other words and deeds are treated with a generous pardon, there is no mercy if it is denied that God is in Christ. Now that's interesting. And he he goes on. And whatever way one sins without pardon, he is gracious to us. And it reminds us again that sins of every kind can be completely forgiven, though blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. For who, says Halari, who is so completely beyond pardon as one who denies that Christ is of God or repudiates that the substance of the Spirit of the Father resides in him. So, for Hilari of Poitiers, the denial of the divinity of Jesus is the unpardonable sin. Now, that's interesting. Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my favorites, he takes a very agnostic approach, at least in some places, to the unpardonable sin. He says, nobody knows what that sin is. I believe that God's word does not even tell us, and it's very proper that it does not. As I have often said, it is like the notice we sometimes see put up. Man traps and spring guns set here. I've never seen a sign that said that, but that's scary. Spurgeon says, we do not know whereabouts the traps and the guns are, but we have no business going over that hedge at all. So, there is sin unto death. We are not told what that sin is, but we have no business to go over this, the hedge into any transgression at all. That sin unto death may be different in different people, but whoever commits it from that very moment loses all spiritual desires. He has no wish to be saved, no care to repent, no longing after Christ. So dreadful is the spiritual death that comes over the man who has committed it that he never craves eternal life. And earlier in that passage, it's quite clear that Spurgeon is speaking there of the unpardonable sin. Let's fast forward a little bit into the current days. We find Billy Graham, who I'm sure you've all heard of. Billy Graham equates the unpardonable sin with blasphemy against the Spirit, but then he goes on to explain what that is. So he says this, The sin of the religious leaders, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, was a refusal refusal to accept the witness of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus was and what he'd come to do and then submit their lives to him. 
Once again, he says, the unpardonable sin is not some particularly grievous sin committed by a Christian before or after accepting Christ, nor is it thinking or saying something terrible about the Holy Spirit, says Graham. Rather, it is deliberately resisting the Holy Spirit's witness and invitation to turn to Jesus until death ends all opportunity. So that might be the number one view today, the most popular view of what the unpardonable sin is, which is, in a nutshell, resisting the call of the Holy Spirit to trust Jesus. And it's unpardonable because essentially a person dies without turning to Jesus. That was Billy Graham's definition. Is it backed up scripturally? I'm not sure it is, but we'll get there in a minute. But Billy Graham is not the first one to come up with that point of view in discussing what the unpardonable sin was. He probably got it from many people before him who got it going all the way back to the late 300s AD to somebody you've probably heard of, Augustine, or Augustine if you prefer that name, one of the key leaders of the early church, one of the great theologians of the church, an African man of a play, in a place called Hippo. This is what Augustine says, the man who, not believing that sins are remitted in the church, despises this great gift of God's mercy and persists to the last day of his life in his obstinacy of heart is guilty of the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost, in whom Christ forgives sins. Now, Augustine himself even didn't come up with that view. He was probably looking back to the teachings of Origen, who lived several decades before him. And Origen himself believed that the unpardonable sin was turning people's backs from grace turning away from the Holy Spirit, and by that act, they are said to be blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Again, some more modern views. John Piper says the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. Leanne Pinnock says, There's one unpardonable sin that can separate us from God for eternity. It is the ongoing, willful refusal to accept Christ as Lord and Savior and the forgiveness he offers. Nancy Hardesty, who died in 2011, I believe, she says this. She says, Ultimately, the refusal to allow women to fully use their gifts in the church and in the world is a form of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So she puts kind of a feminist twist on that scripture. One more opinion. Pope John Paul II. He says blasphemy does not properly consist in offending the Holy Spirit. It consists rather in the refusal to accept the salvation which God offers to man through the Holy Spirit, working through the power of cross of the cross. If Jesus says that Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven either in this life or the next. It is because this non-forgiveness is linked as to its cause to non-repentance. In other words, to the radical refusal to be converted. So there the Pope and uh, many others, including Billy Graham and uh, Leanne Pinnock, all agree that the blasphemy of the Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is turning your back on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Well, my goodness, I could have given you probably 25 more examples of what different people have said the unpardonable, unforgivable sin is. And that should lead us to the Bible. What is the unforgivable sin? If you're as confused as I am right now, I think we need a big dose of scripture. Is the unpardonable sin as Origen, Augustine, Billy Graham, Pope John, Paul II, and Leanne Pinnock suggest, is it the rejection of the Holy Spirit? Is it, as John Chrysostom said, swearing oaths? Is it robbing graves in a terrible manner? Is it not letting women use their spiritual gifts in the church? Is it heresy? Is it testing prophetic utterances of prophets? 
I'll go ahead and say, no, it's not. That's a biblical command. Didache. You'll find it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. We're supposed to test prophetic utterances. Absolutely. It's the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. So we can go ahead and eliminate that as a candidate. The unforgivable sin is not testing a prophetic utterance. But what is it? Well, let's get to the Bible. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, as David Platt says, we're going to read Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. This is the first instant in the New Testament where the unpardonable sin is talked about. Matthew 12, 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. By the way, we'll talk about Beelzebul in a minute. Knowing his thoughts... Their thoughts, Jesus told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, who is it your sons drive them out by? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons, though, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, says Jesus? Then he can rob his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him in this age or in the one to come. So that's a terrifying passage. There is a sin, according to Jesus, that is not only unforgivable now, it is eternally unforgivable. It will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. That's terrifying. We can learn maybe a little bit more about this unpardonable sin in the Gospel of Mark. I'll pick up in Mark 3, verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul in him, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned Jesus, summoned them, and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. By the way, Abraham Lincoln used this very passage in uh, one of his most important speeches. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rebels against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house and rob his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he will rob the house. I assure you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they may blaspheme. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, and this is key, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now that verse 30 is going to be one of our big clues as we seek to unravel this mystery of what the unpardonable sin is. Now such a thing is mentioned only one other time in scripture. It's mentioned in the gospel of Luke chapter 12 verse 8. Much shorter passage here. And this is what Jesus says here. I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is, against himself, will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So I see two major ways we need to answer this question, which has apparently divided believers for almost 2,000 years. The two ways we answer the question of what is the unpardonable sin is number one, contextually, and number two, grammatically. 
Contextually, what does that mean? That means what is the context of the passage, of the usage of unpardonable sin tell us? And then we'll talk about what is the meaning of the word itself. How is it used in other places in scripture? So starting out contextually, looking at the way the story unfolds and what the Bible writers say about it, we see a critically important clue in Mark 3.30. Mark tells us precisely why Jesus warned the Pharisees and scribes about this sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The exact same situation is described in Matthew 12, 31. Because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. In Mark 3, 30 and Matthew 12, 31, we're told why Jesus challenges the scribes and the Pharisees. They are accusing Jesus of doing miraculous things, specifically driving out demons, by the power of Beelzebul instead of the power of God. Therefore, we know at least this one thing from the context. Ascribing or giving credit for something like an exorcism, the casting out of demons, that is factually done by the power of God and His Holy Spirit and giving credit to demonic influence is at best dangerously close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it could, in fact, be blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Because the thing is, in these three passages, Jesus does not make it crystal clear that the scribes and Pharisees were actually committing this sin or merely getting close to committing it. I tend to think the second thing is the better option. I tend to think Jesus was warning them because they were near the edge of the cliff rather than telling them they had just jumped off of a cliff that nobody can be saved from. So, we see so far that the meaning of the unpardonable sin is at least saying that a demon or an unclean spirit has done something that the Holy Spirit has factually done. So practically speaking, what does this mean for us? And I think one takeaway is this. It means that you and I should be extremely, and I wish there was a stronger word than extremely I could use, we should be massively careful about stating confident opinions on spiritual matters that we don't have 100% clarity from scripture on. So let me give you a few examples of this. In the 90s, I used to live in Alabama. Grew up there. I live in California now, but I'm a child of the South, I guess. And during the 90s, there was a tremendous a uh, tremendously well-known revival in Brownsville, which is a city sort of just outside of Pensacola, Florida. It lasted for a couple of years. Thousands of people came. In fact, a, a few thousand, two, three, four, I don't really know the exact numbers, it ended up coming to that church on a nightly basis. So some friends in, uh, of mine and I, we were uh, we were all youth pastors at the time. We wanted to go check this place out. So we drove down to check it out. Good message, good worship, just massively packed crowds of people in this church. And at the end, they were praying for people. And uh, the three of us went down. I was a Baptist youth minister. My buddy was a Baptist youth minister. And the third guy was a Methodist youth minister. So none of us were particularly charismatic. The three of us did go down for prayer, though. Uh, maybe a little bit out of curiosity, but also, you know, really wanting a touch of the Lord because it was a powerful message that night, a message of repentance that seemed very biblically spot on. So we went down to get prayed for. The guy that prayed for me kind of put his finger on my head and prayed for me. And I didn't fall down. I didn't feel a need to fall down. I was not overwhelmed or anything like that. Um, I just stood there and let him pray for me. I, it was a fine prayer. It was good. I felt blessed by it. But I think he was frustrated that I didn't fall down. So he sort of pushed now, I'm not a small guy. I'm about 6'1 and a half, 225, 228, some, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, and 
um, maybe I'm not the easiest guy to push down. So he tried pretty hard to push me down, and I didn't let him push me down. So what does that mean? Does that mean the Holy Spirit wasn't there? Does that mean it was a work of the devil instead of a work of the Spirit? I've seen lots of people comment on what happened at the Brownsville Revival. Some people confidently, beyond a shadow of a doubt, proclaim that it is 100% sure they thought it was a work of the Holy Spirit. And I've seen a few people, not maybe not tons, but some, who just as confidently perhaps even vociferously proclaimed that it was a work of Satan. Maybe because it was a charismatic church. Maybe because of some of the things that happened in the aftermath of the Brownsville revival. I don't know why. But here's the thing. I'm not sure. I went to Brownsville a couple of times and ended up meeting a leader or two from there. One of whom, Dr. Michael Brown, I was very impressed with feel like he had a passion for Jesus. I don't agree with him on everything theologically, but he has a strong message and a strong passion for Jesus. And he took time with me and I'm a nobody. So, so I, I met some of the leaders there and, and they seem like guys who love Jesus. But, but can I confidently say that was a work of the Holy Spirit or it wasn't? Well, what if, hypothetically, it was the Holy Spirit? And somebody proclaimed beyond a shadow of doubt, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's the devil. Now again, I'm being hypothetical because I don't know. I would say that passes the test for being very close to the blasphemy of the Spirit. If something is going on and it is of the Holy Spirit and you stand up and say, that's not of God, it's of the devil, I'm sure of it. And it really is the Holy Spirit doing it. You are in grave danger, according to Luke 12, Mark 3, Matthew 12. Because giving credit to demons for the work of the Holy Spirit is a deadly dangerous thing. So what do we do? We are careful unless we're 100% sure from Scripture that something going on is not of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I don't like most of what I see on television from TV preachers. Most of it is flamboyant, money-grubbing, and, and some of it just outright makes me sick. I can think of times I've seen preachers on various channels with uh, little fundraising numbers spread out and scrolling underneath them. Preachers wadding up their coats and throwing their jackets at whole crowds of people and those people falling over and the preachers proclaiming it to be a work of the Holy Spirit. I've seen preachers blow people down like a Superman sort of thing and then proclaim it to be a work of the Spirit. And, and man, just watching it is so upsetting to me because I don't see anything like that in the Bible and it really disturbs me. So should I hop on my blog chaseathompson.com and fire up a, a post about how that stuff is of Satan? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I should do that because the question is, how do I know for sure? And I mean 100% sure because this is not something you want to gamble about. How do I know for sure that that's a work of Satan or a work of Beelzebul and not a work of God? And the, the thing is, if you can't answer that question with extreme clarity from Scripture, then be careful, beyond careful, about saying confidently what the Holy Spirit will or will not do. And be careful saying whether or not something is from Satan. Contextually, I believe, that is at least a large part of what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is about. So what is blasphemy exactly? table that question for just a minute. We're going to get to it. But first, I want to raise a side question. It could almost be a Bible questions podcast short. Is Beelzebul Satan? And so what was happening when Jesus was casting out these demons is that the scribes and Pharisees were seeing it and they were seeing something amazing happening. And they were saying, 
They were saying, you know, hey, this guy obviously has some sort of power, but it sure can't be of God because, you know, we know this guy isn't from God. So the power must be from Beelzebul. So the question I want to ask real quick is, who in the world is Beelzebul? And is Beelzebul the same person or the same entity as Satan? Unfortunately, I do have a fairly lame answer. And the answer is maybe. But the question itself is kind of fascinating. So Beelzebul and Beelzebub both refer to the same entity. Both are slightly different ways of describing the same entity. The name Beelzebub probably, there's some disagreement about this, but probably means Lord of the Flies. And it could be an early Jewish way of insulting uh, a god of the pagans surrounding them. They could have twisted the name a little bit to insult him, but there's also some evidence that the Acronians and the other people that worshipped Beelzebub, that they actually sort of associated him with the flies. So the Lord of the Flies is Beelzebub. Beelzebul, on the other hand, is a word that probably means Lord of the Skies or Lord of the Heavenly Realms. Now, there's a book from the first century called The Testament of Solomon. It's not a biblical book. Nobody, I don't think anybody accepts it as scripture. Like nobody. It's a pseudo-epigraphic text, which means it's not written by Solomon at all. It was just written by somebody and he put the name Solomon on it. And in that text, Beelzebul not Bub, but Beelzebul, appears as the prince of demons. And that text says that he was formerly a leading heavenly angel associated with the star uh, Hesperus, which is the Greek name for the planet uh, Venus, if you didn't know that, the evening star. So in the Testament of Solomon, at least, Beelzebub, Beelzebul, I'm sorry, is pretty much synonymous with Lucifer. <laughs> Interestingly enough, that text sort of tells the story of how Solomon was enabled to build the temple by uh, commanding demons because he had a magical ring that was given to him by the archangel Michael. Now, I don't believe that's how it went down, but we do get from that that at least some people in the first century thought that Beelzebul and Satan were the same entity. Now, the name Beelzebul itself comes from the Bible. It comes from the Old Testament. We don't know not much about this being at all, but the name comes from Second Kings. Now, I'll read the passage uh, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice window of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers instructing them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, and see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the prophet of God, the Tishbite, go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. And sure enough, Elijah went and gave that message. So that's where the name Beelzebub came from. It is the god of Ekron. The name also appears a chapter earlier in Luke 11, where we see maybe what's the clearest connection in the Bible between Beelzebul and Satan. Luke 11, 14 says Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowds were amazed, but some of them said, He drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say I drive out demons by Beelzebul, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, who is it your sons drive them out by? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. 
So here in this passage, and in the other passages too we've already read, Jesus does mention Satan and Beelzebul in almost the same breath, certainly in the same context, but not in a way that definitively indicates whether or not they are the same or separate entities. Now, my best guess is, and that's all it is, it's completely a guess based on the scripture. My best guess is that the Bible never clearly identifies Satan and Beelzebul as the same entity, so I suspect they might be different spiritual evil entities, which I think is certainly possible. The book of Revelation tells us that uh, a third of the angels in heaven were swept out of heaven. In uh, Revelation chapter 4, there was war in heaven. Might Beelzebul be among that number, or might he be an entirely different evil creature entirely? The bottom line is, as Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, in terms of spiritual matters, we see through a glass darkly. We don't know. So, back to the question at hand. What exactly is blasphemy? What does that word mean? You've probably heard it before, but what does it mean? I believe Luke 12.10 kind of points us in the right direction, clearly, unmistakably. And Luke 12.10 says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. See, that's sort of a parallel statement there, I believe. And I believe the two phrases are used synonymously. In other words, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the same as speaking a word against the Holy Spirit. But I have more proof than just that. For instance, Matthew 12, 32 makes that statement even more clear where Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the one to come. So the word itself, the Greek word blasphemos, is a combination of two words. The word blapto, which means to hurt, and the word feme, which means fame or report, or, or something very akin to our word like reputation. So etymologically, at least, the word has a root meaning of injuring somebody's fame or reputation or good name. And there are other ways to translate that Greek word blasphemos. The word is sometimes translated in scripture as the word defame or revile. And believe it or not, it isn't always used of a deity. Paul talks about himself being defamed or blasphemosed by people for being an apostle. Paul and himself in Titus 3.2 commands the church not to slander or speak evil, the verb is blaspheme, any person, which is a command that honestly Christians would do well to take far more seriously than we do. We're not allowed to slander people as Christians. Now you might be saying, well, what about so-and-so? He's so vile and terrible. Surely we should be able to slander him. Well, sorry, Titus 3.2. We're not a people in the slander business, whether people deserve it or not. Second Peter 2.10 and Jude verse 8 both warn against blaspheming angels, demons, and other spiritual beings. So you can blaspheme somebody that's not God. Basically, we gather this. Blasphemy is speaking evil of someone hurting them with your words, harming their reputation, reviling them, defaming them. Thus, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is speaking evil of him, reviling him, defaming him, seeking to harm his reputation. The Pharisees and scribes were doing that or coming dangerously close when they said it was Satan slash Beelzebul empowering Jesus when it was factually not either Satan or Beelzebul, but the Spirit of God himself. So R.C. Sproul says this, 
Their statements were directed against Jesus. So he said to them, You can blaspheme me and be forgiven, but when you question the work of the Spirit, you're coming perilously close to the unforgivable sin. You are right at the line. You're looking down into the abyss of hell. One more step and there will be no hope for you. He was warning them to be very careful not to insult or mock the Spirit. So last major question we want to deal with. Is it really an unforgivable sin? And what if I have committed it? Now there's different opinions on this. And I definitely have one, an opinion on what I believe Jesus is saying. Honestly, I think it's fairly clear. Beloved, not everybody sees it as clearly as I feel like I do. So take this with a grain of salt and study these passages for yourself. Augustine says this, It is not that this was a blasphemy which under no circumstances could be forgiven, for even this shall be forgiven if right repentance follows it. I don't know where Augustine gets that opinion, but he's not alone in sharing it. In fact, a person wrote Billy Graham a letter a few years ago saying, I'm worried that I've committed the unforgivable sin. And Billy Graham wrote back and said, Many Christians have heard that there is an unpardonable sin and live in dread that something grave that they have done before or after conversion but might be that sin. Their fears, says Graham, are unfounded. Where there is actually an unforgivable sin, it is not one that a true believer in Jesus can commit. In other words, a Christian or somebody who's going to be a Christian will not be able to commit that sin, according to Billy Graham. And he's not the only one with that view. R.C. Sproul similarly says, Humanly speaking, everyone who is a Christian is capable of committing the unforgivable sin. However, I believe that the Lord of glory who has saved us and sealed us by his Holy Spirit will never let us commit that sin. I do not believe that any Christians in the history of the church have blasphemed the Spirit, says Sproul. He continues, as for those who are not sure, they are saved and are wondering and worried if they have committed the unpardonable sin. I would say that worrying about it is one of the clearest evidences that they have not committed the sin. For those who commit it are so hardened in their hearts, they do not care that they commit it. Thanks be to God that the sin that is unpardonable is not a sin he allows his people to commit. So basically, Graham and Sproul have the same opinion that God will not allow you to keep that, to commit that sin. Here's the thing. I personally don't fully share Graham and Sproul's assurances, although I respect them both very deeply. I don't think the Bible ever says or even gives an indication that the believer is unable to commit the unpardonable sin. At least in the context of the passage, Jesus never indicates that a believer would be unable to do it. And I see no other passage that directly promises such. Just a sober warning to not do it. Now, I think John Piper might strike a slightly better balance of grace and fear when talking about this passage. This is what he says. The fact that there is an unforgivable sin, that there comes a point in a life of sin after which the Holy Spirit will no longer grant repentance, that fact should drive us from sin with fear and trembling. None of us knows when our toying with sin will pass over into irrevocable hardness of heart. Very few people feel how serious sin is. Very few people are on the same wavelength with Jesus when he said in Mark 9.43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Instead, continues Piper, many professing Christians today have such a sentimental view of God's justice that they never feel terror and horror at the thought of being utterly forsaken by God because of their persistence in sin. They have the naive notion that God's patience has no end and they can always return from any length and depth of sin, forgetting that there is a point of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power, leaving them never able to repent and be forgiven. And listen to this illustration he gives. They are like the buzzard 
who spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating in the river. He lands and begins to eat. He knows it's dangerous because he sees the waterfall dropping off just ahead, but he looks at his wings and says to himself, huh, I can fly to safety in an instant, and he keeps on eating. Just before the ice goes over the falls, he spreads his wings to fly away, but his claws have frozen in the ice and there is no escape neither in this age nor the age to come. The spirit of holiness likewise can forsake the arrogant sinner forever. So that is a sober, sober warning. And I want to close with this. God, the Holy Spirit, is all-powerful. And this passage, these passages... Luke 12, Mark 3, Matthew 12. The very idea of the teaching of Jesus on the unpardonable sin should fear us, fill us with terror. I don't want to blunt the warnings of Jesus with false assurance. It is likely, I agree, if you are worried you've committed the unpardonable sin, that you haven't because only the Spirit's work in your life would make you fear the Lord. But the way that Jesus addressed this is with the highest level of seriousness. So must we address it in the exact same way. This passage rightly inspires fear in us, and that's okay. It should. It's obviously recorded in the scripture for that purpose. You say, well, fear is not a good thing. I don't want to read the Bible and be scared. I beg to differ. Fear is a wonderful thing in the right way. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 2.5, you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Fearing God is a key to understanding God himself. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. That is worth pondering, my friends. Revelation 14.6, John says, I saw another angel flying high overhead, having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, and this was his message. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The word for fear in the Bible has the same meaning as our word fear. It means fear. In the same breath that Jesus speaks about the unpardonable sin in Luke 12, he says this, And I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. He's talking about his father. I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, that is an amazing passage, and it shows us we treat God and we treat God the Holy Spirit with remarkable sobriety, fear and wisdom. Fear the Lord, as Jesus says, and don't be afraid to trust him. Did you catch that in Luke 12? He says, fear God, and then he says, don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. He who knows all of the sparrows, all the birds, he who numbers the hairs on our head counts us as of great worth and loves the world enough to send his son to rescue it. Recently, J.D. Greer, a pastor on the East Coast, was talking about the encounter that Elijah had with Baal, the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal were trying to get the attention of their God by hollering and working and dancing and screaming and cutting themselves and bleeding. And this is what Greer says about that. The prophets of Baal began by dancing around their altar. They end by slashing at themselves until the blood runs free. 1 Kings 18.28 False gods always push us towards destruction. Work harder, do better, obtain more. You still aren't getting my attention. Slash yourself. So we do. We slash at our bodies by going through crash diets. 
to attain that perfect figure. We slash at our families by overworking to make extra money. We slash at our souls by compromising our integrity to get someone's affection. False gods push us to mutilate ourselves because we desperately want to win their approval. But only one God was ever mutilated for us, Jesus Christ. This story in 1 Kings 18 ends with magnificent fire coming from heaven. But as Jesus himself points out to his first disciples, the fire was not intended for sinful humanity. It was ultimately intended for him. Of all the characters in this story, Jesus is not Elijah calling down fire. He is the altar, the sacrifice who receives the fire of judgment. At the cross, Jesus took into his body the fire of God's justice so that we could take into our lives the fire of God's love. Other gods demand dancing, slashing, and mutilation, but Jesus Christ is the only God who was himself slashed and mutilated for us. As Tim Keller has said, every other God will make your blood run. Only the true God bleeds for you. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel, that Jesus paid the price on the cross for my sin and your sin. So yes, fear the Lord. Yes, treat the Holy Spirit with the utmost dignity. Yes, be super careful with your opinions and pronouncements about spiritual things because you and I see dimly. But rush to trust yourself to the living God who sacrificed himself for you. Rush to look to Jesus and live, for he is the author and the perfecter of your salvation, and he will hold you secure. Thank you so much for listening to the Bible Mystery Podcast. I do want to invite you once again to check out our website, BibleMysteryPod.com. That's BibleMysteryPod.com. It helps us enormously when you subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever. You can find all those links on our website, BibleMysteryPod.com. See you soon. Thanks for listening.